All right, if you brought your Bible or your iPhone, iPad, whatever you have, turn to the book of Philippians, and it's chapter 4. It's uh, one of Paul's last letters that he wrote from prison before he died. But we're going to be looking there in just a minute. Have you ever thought about it this way, that there are a lot of things in this book that are hard to believe? Now, I know that sounds a little bit heretical. And someone might say, well, how could you say that? You've been in church all your life, and, you, and, and we're coming here, and we're all believers. How can we say some things are hard to believe? Some things are hard to believe. And that's Okay. That's really okay. I was a little bit surprised that when I first went away to, some of you know I had a stint in, at a Bible college for about 11 years. And this was a Christian, Christian college where most these, a lot of these kids had grown up in pastors' homes, missionaries' homes. They'd grown up here in truth all their lives. And they're getting into college, and they're starting to question if they really believe this or not. And when I first heard the, the percentage of that on, on, a, on a survey, it alarmed me. And I thought about my first response was getting up and telling them all, you need to believe this. You've been taught this all your life. <clears throat> but I thought, that's not going to help them. But they need to work through it. They need to work through it. And there's a church in Greece that Paul had uh, established and it was a town called Berea. And he said that these, these people were noble because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true or to see if these things were so. Every one of our children will have to come to the decision whether or not they can believe that. And I'm, and I'm referring back to Easter Sunday, when I, I think the title of the message was hard to believe or something along that line, because it was hard to believe. Jesus rose from the dead. It was hard to believe. These disciples had been with him for three and a half years. They had seen all of his miracles. They had watched him raise other people from the dead. They had heard his teaching. They had heard him repeat over and over again, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be scourged, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise again the third day. And then when he did, they still didn't believe. They still didn't believe. Now, it, it's, it's easy for us to be armchair quarterbacks and say, I can't believe it. Where is their faith? Would we have done better at that time? Still today, there are hard things. When we read through the Scriptures, they're hard really to believe. Unless you say, well, I believe the Bible. And, and I could say that to you. I, I believe it from cover to cover. I believe the Bible. But some, some statements are hard for me to process. They're hard for me to believe, and they're hard for me to live. And so the truth of the resurrection, the... The death, the burial, and the resurrection are hard for many people in this county to believe. I think we need to say, that's okay. Let's investigate. Let's, let's talk. Let's look and see what the Scripture says. Let's see what history proves out and not be afraid of this. 
So not only are some things hard to believe when it comes to faith in Christ, believing in salvation, but there are many things that are very difficult in just living out the Christian life. So the title of my message this morning is The Call to an Extraordinary Life. In other words, extraordinary, something different, something unusual, something beyond your capacity. And I think that what you'll find is that when you put your faith, you come to a point in your life where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there's an immediate tension. And the tension is he's going to be calling you to believe things and do things that are, that are past where you are. <laughs> in other words, you're not equal to the task. You're going to think, how, how can I do that? And Paul really, his life is a, is a story of that. When you, when you read his letters, and he's, he's very biographical in his writing, he'll share his experiences. You will see the tensions in his life. And, and he, he speaks in a confessional way where you can kind of come into his life and see how he's working through this. And, and Philippians is one of the last letters that he writes. And he's in prison. He'll uh, be released shortly, back in prison, and eventually he'll be beheaded under the reign of Nero. But this is kind of coming to the conclusion of his life. And, and this, these are heartfelt letters to people he loves, helping them work through the pressures and the tensions of that call to an extraordinary life. And this morning, what I'd like to do, and just kind of follow along these thoughts of what's hard to believe and what's hard to live, of what Paul says in chapter 4 of Philippians. Now, this is, this, these are verses, if you have a Bible or you can mark it on your iPhone. And, and um, I remember the first time years ago when iPhones were coming out, I was up preaching and, to college students, and they all had their phones out. And I thought, they're so disrespectful. I can't believe they're... And uh, someone says, no, they're, they're reading it on their phone. <laughs> and, and honestly, it's a lot easier to carry your Bible in your phone in your pocket then carry this in your pocket. Um, but I feel a little awkward holding my iPhone saying God said in his word um, when I'm preaching. So, But whatever you have and is available to you, because what I like for you to do is to see it yourself. So see it yourself, read it yourself, go back to it, and own it. That's, what, that, that, that's, that's the main thing. So Philippians 4.4, 4, listen to this extraordinary statement. Paul says, rejoice... In the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now, you can say that's a very encouraging statement. Uh, Some of those verses, I say, that's that's a real good verse to give to someone else. (laughs) I like giving verses to someone else. Like, rejoice in the Lord always. (laughs) But I really don't like it when someone gives it to me if I've got a bad attitude. Because they're trying to be corrective. What's so amazing about this verse is not not that it's a command to rejoice, but it's a command to rejoice in every circumstance at all times, no matter what. That's impossible. Would you agree that that's humanly impossible? I mean, live a day in this world. Live a week. Is it possible for us to, to go through that and rejoice always? And I'd say, humanly speaking, no, you can't. I don't, I don't see how you can. There are, enough, there are enough things that happen along the way that rob you of your joy. And rejoicing is not just a, um, 
a happiness, a high five, clapping your hands. Um, it, it can be some of that too. I mean, but it, it's a deep-seated peace and a contentment, a joy that is a fullness, a satisfaction. And Paul, even now, is experiencing this as he writes in prison. Because my first response is, well, you don't know what my life is like. You tell me that, you don't know what my life is like. But I'd be saying that to Paul, who's sitting in prison, (laughs) who's telling me to rejoice, always. And so it creates tension. he's, He's calling you to something that is impossible. It's extraordinary. It's, it's beyond what you're able to do. And I'm convinced that the reason Paul can say that and really believe it, and he's come to own this, I think you'll see this, he's come to really own it, is because he has developed a certain view of God how he sees God, and and so how he sees God will affect how he sees himself. And I've I've said this, I think one of the the conclusions I've, I've written out many times is that the most important thing in your life is how you view God. I ask, I ask college students, what's the first thing you think about when you think of God? You know, is he the grim reaper? Is he the guy up there who's going to bust you if you mess up? Is he going to zap you? Is he uh, holy and righteous and I don't want to run in fear? Or how do you view him? And how you view God will determine how you view everything. So you, you need to have a right view of God. And God has given us the perfect view, the perfect picture of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians. The glory of God, in other words, the picture of the face of God is in the or of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is revealed to us in his word and taught to us by his spirit. And when I have a right view of God in all of his fullness through Christ, then I can see myself rightly, see my circumstances rightly. And when I, when I do that, I can have joy always in every circumstance, every situation, every trial. Some things are still heavy, but there's a deep sense of peace and contentment and fullness and satisfaction. That is the will of God for you. And I would say this, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Because what I'm saying to you this morning, I've had to wrestle through. I've had to wrestle through to get to own this. I can say I rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice and tell everyone else that way, but every day struggle with that. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to just in chapter 4, and I'm going to refer back a little bit just in Philippians. We're just going to stay in Philippians. But some of the, what I would say, impossible statements, incredible statements, and extraordinary statements that Paul makes. So you think, that's, that's, there's no way. That's impossible. And tie it to what he's come to learn about God, the view of God. And... Uh, to me, this, this is exciting. This is exciting scripture. This is so helpful and um, that I can share this with you. The first, the first one I want you to look at is in verse 11. He says, not that I am speaking, speaking of being in need, 
For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So he's saying whatever circumstance, whatever situation, I've learned this. I wasn't born this way. Most babies aren't born content. You know, when they come out of the womb and you see most kids aren't content, most adults are not content. (laughs) Paul said this, I've learned this, okay? So this is part of the developing process of the Christian life. I'm learning this, that in every single situation, I've learned to be content, content, at peace, full of joy. And I'm thinking, snowstorm, traffic, screaming kids, bosses after me, financial difficulties. I mean, I mean every single circumstance. <laughs> and I've thought that that can't be. And... And yet Paul has, has learned this through frustrating experiences. And if you go back to chapter 1, which is only a page back, uh, in verse 12, here's what he says about his circumstance, his present circumstance. I said he's in, he's in jail. He's going to see Nero. Um, he's appealed to Caesar, falsely accused, but he's been, he's, he was two years in Caesarea in jail. He was two years in Rome before he got to see Nero. And here's what he says, his conclusion in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, in other words, my circumstance, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of my, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here's an amazing thing. Paul, when he's in others of his letters, is is telling people he's, he's wanting to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, which at that time he was talking specifically about Spain. So, he was going all through Greece. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to continue on to Spain and go to every place preaching the good news of salvation. And that's a, that's a wonderful calling. But now he's in jail. He's in prison. He's not accomplishing anything. And you know what? It's like you have all these dreams, all these visions, and they're all good. They're all like God would love this. And he puts you in a box. What's this all about? <laughs> I mean, why am I confined now? Why am I restricted now? I'm not going to Spain. I'm not preaching the gospel. I'm not discipling people. I'm not doing anything that I wanted to do. And you can, you can, you can see how he could really build with frustration and lose all of his joy because things, are not, because things were not going right. They were not going according to plan, but they were going according to God's perfect plan. So what he says is, well, actually, being in this box (laughs) has served to advance the gospel. And the second thing he says is, and to give others boldness in sharing the gospel. Well, how did it advance the gospel? Well, when he was in jail, Roman guards, the imperial guards, were assigned to him, and they, they ran rotations. Paul was allowed to have all of his friends come in, and he had to pay his own rent, 
for his jail cell. Can you, can you believe that? Um, so he's paying rent, and all of his friends are coming and going. So what, what do those guards listen to all day? Can you imagine that? It's like every day is a Bible conference. <laughs> so whatever shift they have, it is going to be nonstop, 24-7, the Apostle Paul praying, speaking, sharing the gospel, encouraging people. So what happened, and, and this is throughout church history, is that many, many of these soldiers became Christians. So you're talking about really sharp, I mean, the best of the imperial guard be, being converted, coming to Christ, believing in salvation. When they finish their assignment, where do they go? All over the Roman Empire. These guys are getting promoted, and they're going into all of the regions of the Roman Empire, and they are evangelizing. Isn't that something? So now if Paul was in his box going, I just can't believe this. I'm stuck here. I can't do anything. Now he's realizing the gospel is literally exploding through the entire Roman Empire. And it's interesting how the Greek language was the common language. The Roman road system was traveling really to the ends of the earth. The, the, the Roman Empire was having influence over everyone. They even believed that Nero's wife became a Christian, which I think probably didn't help <laughs> Paul in the end. But isn't that something, how how something totally bad happens that could rob you of all your joy because you're not able to do what you wanted to do because of your circumstance, but God overrides that for good. Now look back to verse 6 of chapter 1. This is the conclusion he comes to. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What good work did God start in you? Well, saving you. I think it actually started before that. It was loving you. That's a good work. He loved you. He sought you. And he saved you. That's the beginning of his work. And he is going to keep on bringing that to completion, but he's probably going to do it in a way that's different than what you planned. So what is it that God has seen, or that Paul has seen about God? Here's a word. God is sovereign. When I use that word sovereign, I mean God is orchestrating all of his power and his wisdom and his might and his knowledge to work his perfect plan exactly the way he wants to. And so when you trust in that kind of God, that he knows what he's doing, he knows what he's doing, then every bad thing, every difficult thing, every catastrophic thing, every disappointing thing. You know, I, I got up wondering this morning, Lord, how can, how can anything good come out of Josh Carter dying? Or what about his wife? What about his kid? I mean, Lord, he's left, he's left everything to go to Indonesia to share the gospel, and that's what he gets. I mean, you can, you can really go down that road. And it's really a road of self-pity, and it's a road that does not recognize the sovereignty of God. And all of us tend to do that. I've done that many times. I've shared this with you before. There have been times I've been mad at God. You say, well, that's not very spiritual. Well, it's reality. How did you get mad at God? I got frustrated with him. 
because here I am, Lord, I'm serving you, I'm doing this, doing this, doing this, and then this happens. And I'm frustrated. I don't understand it. And if, and if you let that frustration build, pretty soon it comes to resentment and anger with God. And all along, just as much with Paul, he will with me, he will with you. He's working everything for your good and for the advance of the gospel. Now, let me just say this. It's hard to believe. you got to work through it. You don't just wake up feeling good about everything. You have to work back to that truth. This is true about God. So, God is sovereign. Therefore, I rejoice always. And I've learned in whatever state I'm in, whatever circumstance I'm in, I can be content. Now, here's a second incredible statement. Some of these may be familiar with you. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, if I, if I stop at the first part of this, I can do everything I need to do. I can, I can do it. And I'm thinking how many times I've said in my life, I can't do that. I can't put up with it. I can't handle it. I can't follow through with it. I mean, we start off very, at a very young age saying, I can't. Those of you who take your kids skiing and you're teaching them how to ski, this is my present this winter experience. And the kids are doing fine, and all of a sudden they end off in the really deep snow in the trees, and, and they're like pretzels, and they're crying. I can't do it. I can't do it. And, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, they're just kind of in a helpless spot. And, and I thought, fast forward life, and you're 40. And you know what? It may not be skiing, but it's something else. I can't handle this. I can't go through this. I can't. It's too much for me. It's too much for me. The moment you become a Christian, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, does not mean life gets easy. In fact, I think it actually gets harder. Because he, he expects you to trust him and believe in him for greater things and extraordinary things. I think the Christian life is a harder life because it demands that you have to wrestle through and, and prove these things out, reason these things out, investigate these things out. I can't do this. When I was, uh, I just finished high school, and um, God had started working in my life through various things, but primarily for just reading my Bible. And I got to a point where I said, Lord, I'm tired of living the way I'm living I was miserable. And, and I said, I, I, I'm, I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. I remember that. It was in June, right after I graduated from high school. From that moment on, my life started getting really hard. <laughs> first thing, one of the first things I remember was, I'm reading along, reading along, and, and, and I'm reading this verse, and it says, who, who will go for me? Who will I send? Um, it's like, who will preach for me? And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, I don't know, Lord. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like God puts his finger on my life. I want you to be a spokesman of the gospel to preach the word. Now, you got to understand, I had avoided public speaking all my life 
that summer, I, I never got up in front of people. That was, it was a par- paralyzing thought. I don't care how excited I was about something. And it was, one of, it was one of those things that actually made it so I couldn't even breathe when I thought about it. Now, you're, you're thinking, oh, I, don't, I can't even imagine that because you're up here talking now. Uh, I still, to this day, don't love public speaking. Um, I wouldn't describe even to people that I love to preach or I love to get in front of people and love to speak. I, I would say it this way. I am compelled to do it because I've been called to do it. And, and I depend upon and I know the grace of God in helping me to do that. But that was my, my, the first example of, of me, of God really kind of taking my breath away with asking me to do something. I felt, I can't do that. I can't do that. And I would say that every significant move for Diane and me over the last 36 years, almost 36 years that we've been married, that every significant move that God has worked in our life has, has made me feel like I can't do that. Created that tension. And just when I start thinking I can do it, <laughs> he reminds me that I can't. So you cannot live the Christian life alone. You cannot live it without Christ that's why he says, I can do all things through Christ, through him who gives me the strength. And I think back to the working in us. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is, that is just a great verse. It is God who works in you. He works in you. How? By His Word and by His Spirit, He's working in you to bring about His good work and for His pleasure. So what is it that you learn about God, your view of God? So you can remember this. I'll keep these with S's. Is that God is strong. God is strong. Not only is God sovereign. Say, God is sovereign. He's ordering all the events for my good. I can see it working. God is strong is that God has, we use the word omnipotent. He has all power. In other words, he doesn't have just a little more strength than I do. God has all power. So anything he wants you to do, he'll give you the strength to do. Typically, and I would say this to to young people, is that when you say, Lord, I'll follow you, he's going to lead you through a series of impossible situations. He's going to lead you through ways where you need him. And you need to realize that he is your strength, that you cannot do this by yourself, whatever you might face. It may be financial pressure. It may be a marriage situation, relationship with your kids. It may be in your job. It may be a health situation. It may be that your entire world is falling apart and you're saying like the kid stuck in the snow, I can't do this. Well, that's a good recognition. And God would say, you're right, you can't do that. But I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So I can't, I think is in everyone's vocabulary, but it needs to be removed because Christ has given us that promise. Well, isn't that, a, isn't that amazing? Every single thing he asks you to do, he'll give you the strength to do. And one more statement uh, of course, there are many of these, but I picked three of these out of chapter four that I think are just uh, 
They're outstanding. In verse 18 of chapter 4, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Talks about a fragrant offering and so forth. But if I could boil down that statement, he says this, I have everything that I need. Can you imagine this saying to your kids, or your grandkids saying, okay, Christmas is coming, what do you want? He said, I have everything that I need. Now, my wife, she'll tell, and they say, what does dad want for Christmas? Dad has everything. <laughs> now, kids aren't going to say that. And we kind of do that, I do that imagination thing one, once in a while. I'm thinking, what if I won the lottery? You know, of course, I didn't, I wouldn't buy a ticket. That'd be gambling, but I'd find it on the sidewalk in my, in my virtual world. Um, <clears throat> And uh, with my billion dollars, of course, just be very generous with everybody and then have a bunch left over. What would I do? What would I do? (laughs) Well, we all probably think in terms of if I only had this or if I only had, you know, if we could only have this because there there are things, things we need. Well, in chapter 3 and verse 10, or not verse 10, verse 8, Paul says that... um, he counts all things but loss. Most of the things we need are very temporal. And, you know, you can imagine that, that if I had that new car, that new house, or that new whatever, whatever it might be, a raise, you know. But if I only had this, and, and, and I imagine if I could, uh, and you could just kind of, in your mind, picture if I had a blackboard up here and I wrote on the blackboard, if I had blank, I would be content. And then I'll give you 30 seconds to put anything in the blank you want. Ready? Go. Okay, go through 30 seconds. You fill it up with everything you could ever dream of and ever want. And then time's up. Would you be content? No, you wouldn't because you you forgot something. Oh, I forgot. I forgot that. So immediately I'm not content. You could pile the whole world into that slot. It does not give you the settledness, the peace, the joy, the fullness, the contentment that Paul's talking about. It just doesn't. It's incapable. And when you look at you look at what he says, I have I have everything. I have everything that I need. Look at verse 19 that follows that. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That is an amazing verse. My God will supply every need. Not out of his riches, according to his riches. That's pretty amazing because it's limitless. He has no limit. It's according to that. So it's a superabounding supply. I may have shared this story with you before, but one of the great biographies that I, I read years ago was um, by, John, by John Payton. And this was written in the middle, middle part of the 19th century. But he was a pastor in Glasgow, Scotland, and uh, they'd been praying about 
you know, sending missionaries. This is kind of the modern missions era movement, and they're sending missionaries all around the world. Well, there was a place east of Australia. Uh, now on the map it's called Vanuatu, but it was at the time it was called the New Hebrides, the New Hebride Islands. Well, 30 years ago, two men had gone there, um, landed their boat on the shore. Uh, people met them, clubbed them, beat them to death, boiled them, and ate them. Well, from that point on, they realized that all of these islands were occupied by cannibals. But they thought, okay, does that mean we don't go? So they're praying, praying, praying. 30 years of praying about this. Finally, Peyton says, I need to go. I need to go. And one of the older men in the church said, Pastor, why would you go do that? We've got a great worker. People have been saved all the time. You're going to go over there and be eaten by cannibals. And he said, Mr. Scott, you're old and advanced in years. And he said, pretty soon you're going to die and be eaten by worms. What difference will that make in the day of, in the day of Christ? <laughs> that was a pretty bold statement. Well, that's kind of one of those, uh, I, don't, I would say it's cavalier, but it's like, I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to go to the ends of the earth. We can all say that. But then, finally he gets there. He's really left everything. He's brought his wife with him. On the way, they have a little boy. He gets to the island. He starts having seen some progress. He's having to look around his shoulder all the time because they carry these killing knives, they call them, to, to kill him and eat him. You know, so he's just constantly watching like this. But they're starting to reach people. But it's very, very, uh, a lot of mysticism, a lot of, lot, a lot of fear among these people, a lot of, uh, of the witchcraft type thing. And things started getting bad and a lot of pressure, a lot more threats started coming to him. His wife got sick and she died. His son got sick and he died. He sat on their grave for a number of days fearing they would dig their bodies up and eat them. They burned down his house, everything he had done. They burned, they burned up all of his translation work. They built, built the uh, church building that he had built to be able to do that. And then one of the neighboring tribes said, we're going to come tomorrow and we're going to kill you. And we're going to eat you. I mean, he lost everything. He's lost everything. So he takes off. He, he runs. He goes to all the way to the other end of the island. He climbs up in this large tree. He's looking for some ship to come. And he's up there with the clothes on his back, and he's lost everything. And Peyton says in his, his autobiography, he said, after a while I came to the realization that all I had left was Jesus. And it was enough. And that realization brought to me the greatest joy I've ever experienced. He's enough. So my third word, I had sovereign, strong, sufficient. If all I have is Jesus, it is enough. It is enough. That's a painful story, but what happened is Peyton did escape. The ship came. He was able to get on the ship, went back to Australia, later came back with other people, evangelized that entire island, and all the New Hebrides Islands were evangelized. Churches on every island of people being saved. 
Now, personally, I wouldn't want to walk that path. I mean, but that's not the path God's called me to. And it's not the path God's called you to. But God has called you to a path that is filled with impossibilities and reasons to get frustrated and angry and doubt. And so you need to work through it in your life to see, is this true? Yes, it is true. I'm finding this true, that God is sovereign. Paul found out that God was sovereign. Yes, God is strong. He has all ability to do what I cannot do. You have to find that true in your life, in your situation. The things that you need, you don't have this, you don't have this. If I only had this to bring me security, the only thing that will ever give you lasting security is Jesus. And see, you boil those all down to this simple statement in verse 4 that we started with is rejoice in the Lord always. Every circumstance, every situation, every weakness, every lack. He said rejoice. And you can because it's how you see God as you look in the face of Christ is revealed by the Word and taught to you by His Spirit. So my challenge to you today is this. In the test, in the tension, in the problem that you have now, investigate if this is not true. Investigate. Don't be upset if people in Boulder say, I, don't, I, can't, I have a hard time believing that. You can say, I've had a hard time believing too because of the tests. But here's what I found. Here's what I found. And that's what Paul's whole letter is a testimony. It's like, here's, here's what I found to be true. My prayer is this, that you, you would find in your life this to be true. Father, thank you so much for your word. It, it comes right to where we live. It touches our heart and it gives us hope. Thank you, Lord, for the greatness of who you are. Thank you for giving us Christ, who is the face that we can see. Thank you for your word that teaches us and your spirit that guides us. And Lord, I pray that no one here would feel bad about having questions. But we keep searching, keep looking. And Lord, I pray that you would show us like you did Paul and it would become real. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to pray and uh, I'm not, I'm not going to embarrass anyone or point you out, but how many, I just feel compelled this morning to say, how many of you right now are really going through a difficult, a difficult situation that you've really, it's kind of disillusioned you a little bit about God and where He is and how He's working, and, and you'd say, I need this this morning in my situation. Would you pray for me? And before I close, uh, I'll do that. Just raise your hand just quickly and then put it back down. Thank you. And a number of people just say, in my situation right now, I need prayer. Lord, I pray for these. And Lord, for all of us every day that get challenged, but particularly for these that are going through difficulties, that you would prove yourself to them again and again to be true. Lord, thank you for the blessing of your presence here this morning and knowing our pain and knowing where we struggle and knowing our fears and doubts and being the solution and being our joy.
And we thank you for doing that. We pray in Jesus' name.